in that sense I connect to it but I don't know about the parenting sense it sounds like you guys are well healthier than I am which we don't for a very long time um, I think I saw this and I go <gasps> what is what was oh, my no. first reaction I'm doing it. was um, but I think that Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And I'm Dr. Sassan Nagash at San Diego State University. Today, Sassan is going to bring us a conversation about red table talk and toxic forgiveness. Ooh, intrigue. Then in our academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss the academic article, not such a complainer anymore, confrontation that signals a growth mindset can attenuate backlash. So many flashy words there. And then in good or bad advice, we're going to go through, of course, some social media posts. You guys, I found some good ones this, or maybe some bad ones. I don't know. I guess we'll figure that out. We'll have a conversation. Wait and see. If you have any advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us, Facebook us, or Instagram us all at attachpodcast. Or, of course, go to the old faithful, go straight to the website, y'all, uh, attached podcast.com and send us a message as always for bonus content uh, please head over to our patreon page patreon.com slash attached as always wherever you listen to the podcast youtube apple spotify numerous platforms please rate and review it and of course smash gently that subscribe button quite a lineup we have today i'm super excited about this episode but before we get to all that goodness um, what have you guys been up to? Tell me stories. Woods, what's going on? I have been cooking more lately with meat. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. So the opposite of Sesson. Preferred. That's right. Yes, uh-huh. the opposite. Uh, I um, have like low iron oh. and it's like recommended that that would be important. Sure. And so there's like a whole category of food that in general I avoid, but especially avoid like cooking and touching. I don't really know what I'm doing. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And so I've been like um, making a lot of different chicken dishes okay, and just like mentally having to turn off the part of my brain that really dislikes like looking at the chicken or touching mm-hmm. the chicken or like, like just really having to just go for it. Um, and it's been really successful. Yeah. You're turning off parts of your brain. Oh, yeah. Just right. That's right. Well, I was going to say I, I learned that chicken is not really the meat to necessarily be okay. eating. I was going to say something about that. Um, when I, I say <laughs> so many weeks of trying to eat chicken a few times a night, like to personally cook the chicken. A few times a night? No, I'm sorry. A few times a week. It's too much chicken, what you just said. A few times a week is already plenty of chicken. It's way too much freaking chicken. And then I mentioned it to a physician that oh I work God. with. And they were like, you mean steak? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Beef? No, I meant chicken. Oh, no. So that's okay. I tried steak last night for the first time and I don't Gosh. know how long. How'd that go? It came out okay. Okay. <laughs> My daughter mm. really loves steak and she took one oh. bite and she goes, hmm, this is very 
salty. <laughs> looks at me on the side of her eyes like, what did you do to the steak? And I'm like, you're going to eat all that steak and you're going to love it. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Oh, my gosh. I love that so much. Um, I can't wait to tell my husband that story. That's fantastic. Or let him listen to this later, but I'll also tell him it's fine. Uh, that's fantastic. Sesson, uh, what's going on in your world? First of all, I'm jealous that you're doing the reverse of what I'm doing, which is like it's so funny. being recommended yeah. to eat meat. I'm like, please. Yes, leaning into it. Oh. Leaning into the meat. Yeah. <laughs> leaning into the meat. I made a... You know what? I've heard these people who like buy a half a cow and just store it in their freezer. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. The and then less... It's, Connected to actual animal, it is. I mean, the, it the won't better. have the fur on it. Oh, we are. She's trying to get back on the meat game. Got to take the visual out of it. Oh I was thinking gosh. it would be like farm raised and like, if that's what you're worried about. Yeah, no, it has to no. be Got too close to murder. Yeah, right yeah. There. <laughs> <laughs> seriously, I get that. Sorry, I haven't been hashtag able to farm live. <laughs> True. Um. But I, I just made a, and this is not what I've been up to, but I, I just to say, side note, I made a fabulous tofu crumble stuffed bell pepper dish a couple Sounds of days ago. Sounds delightful. Yes. I even tricked my father-in-law into thinking it was real ground beef. And it worked. I'm telling you. <laughs> Sneaky minks. Doing better. I mean, if I can convince people that something tastes like meat when it's not, that's a sign of good cooking in my no, opinion. I if I do say so myself. Iron? I was going to say, does it? No, but doesn't like spinach and kale have iron? I've done some of that too. I've tried to increase the leafy green vegetables. Yes, 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 indeed. And doesn't like lentils? I mean, there's... there's... Lentils have iron in them. I've also introduced lentils on occasion. They're They're delicious. I love lentils. Yeah. Thanks, guys. So we're... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Sasson. No, you go. We have discovered a um, Cuban restaurant in our uh, town of San Diego um, that we really love. And we've been there about four times now. And it's been less than a month. And every time we have a visitor or something, we introduce it to them and watch them eat, you know, like looking for the same reaction that we had when we first ate there, which was like, I mean, we leave there uncomfortable every time, which is (laughs) so good. It's wonderful. It's uh, between the empanadas that they serve and the plantains and just pulled pork and how it just slides off. It's just amazing. So I'm obsessed now with Cuban food and I probably had it once before then ever. So if anybody wants to come visit San Diego, you will be going there. (laughs) It is a requirement of visiting me. It would be really funny if it was a prerequisite. Listen, you're not allowed to come visit me unless you've been to this restaurant before. (laughs) Just saying. Um, So, yes. So, this weekend, we are trying to get fully immersed in the cooling weather here. Um, And we went to kind of one of those agritourism type places with a corn maze. Um. It was very lovely. They also have all these activities for kids to do. We did the corn maze. Absolutely nailed it. It was funny at each of the spot. They had like dad jokes. And so that was a lot of fun. But have you guys ever been to one of those agritourism type locations before? Is that just like a, like for pumpkin picking? Yeah. Like We're talking about a patch here or something? Oh well, yeah. A patch is part of it. But you know, they also have like a corn maze and usually like games yeah. for kids and yeah. stuff like that. And maybe some stuff. Okay. That's, that's all they were in New York. Like where I'm initially from, 
I didn't know that that wasn't a thing everywhere. We definitely didn't call it agro-tourism. Whatever you though, just called it. That's fancy. It's just Ooh. a patch. Yeah, that's... You know, it's like agriculture, but tourism, like entertainment, it's how a lot of, or agri-entertainment, I think it's what it's called, too. Agro-entertainment? That's farming language she's talking right now. Probably. She's she's talking farming right now. But it's a way a lot of farms make money, right, When if they can't, like, make it off of the crops that they have or whatever. So anyway, I just wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about the activities that were there, just to see if it was, like, normal activities that might be in your neck of the woods. Um, one of them was a big, huge, like giant, like bubble that the kids would like bump, like a rubber bubble that they would bounce on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. That was, that was good. The second one was like three levels of giant hay bales that the kids could ju- climb sure. up to the top of. Yep. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, hay tower. Yeah. Hay tower. Yeah. Okay. So okay. Still um, the other one was a giant mound of dirt. With <laughs> ropes at the top that the kids would climb up the dirt hill. This is agro entertainment. Maybe it is something different that I'm not familiar it's with. It's very that economical, one. I think. That sounds <laughs> really a very cheap activity. I like that. They loved it. The kids loved it so much. Yeah. I saw that dirt mound and I thought, oh my God, I cannot wait to tell you guys that the weekend activity for the kids was climbing up to the top of the hill, <laughs> a dirt hill. <laughs> don't need that much no, they, they, they absolutely loved it covered Love filthy it's so dry here so it was there was a lot of dust in the air you know from the, the all of the kids playing in the dirt and stuff like that um but there was so much that like my sinuses this morning mm. when i woke up are crazy and like my eyes are like irritated and all puffy <clears throat> oh. like i had like a full bender last night but no no <laughs> <laughs> so it, was, it was just an accord maze and <laughs> breathing in a lot of uh, uh, dust. It was intense. Uh, but it was cool. a lot of fun. Did you sign a release? Uh huh. We did. <laughs> Probably had to. They're like, Probably oh. had to. They're like, no, we're not going to put in this dirt mound and not make people sign releases. <laughs> we are not responsible for anything that happens to your children. Any tumbling down, we are not responsible for any of it. <laughs> That sounds like a fun time, though. Minus Come on down to Tennessee, y'all. Go climb the dirt mound. Um, it was a lot of fun. We had a blast. It was fantastic. Shout out Oaks Farms. First up, popping culture. We learn a lot about relationships from our friends and family. We know this, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. So for this first segment, we'd like to take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Sesson, what you got for us today? So there is a um, show uh, hosted by Jada Pickett-Smith, and it's run through Facebook Watch um, show. Um, I was and wondering it's, where it was. Okay. Yeah, I haven't admittingly watched it consistently, but I've watched things here and there, clips yeah. of the show. But something stood out to me this week when you know um, I came across the conversation they had most recently, which was about the idea and practice of toxic forgiveness. Sort of, it really stood out because, um, admittingly, it's not a concept I'm very familiar with, but it's one that. As I came to understand, <clears throat> once I started researching it, it's one people are talking about a bit more. 
um, Nadra Glover uh, Kawab. I think that's how her name might be pronounced. Uh, authored a book, Set Boundaries, Find Peace, A Guide for Reclaiming Yourself. And in it, they talk about um, this concept, I think, a bit. So toxic forgiveness, um, as defined by her, is this unhealthy way that people pretend to be unharmed or be over it or um, forgetful of an offense. Okay. Um, it's forgiving to keep the peace um, or people-pleasing, and it's not very healthy um, um, for one's mental health or their relationships. Um, yeah. And, you know, for those of us who study relationships, we're familiar with the concept of forgiveness and in terms of, you know, how sort of the different elements of forgiveness and how challenging it can be for a lot of people to exercise forgiveness. Um, and it's a goal I think we often pursue, right, just to forgive even in our um, work as clinicians trying to move people towards forgiveness. But it's a very sort of different way of thinking about how um, in that effort sometimes we have to be careful because um, there could be mm. some harm that yeah, comes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah in that practice. And so it really did have me pause and think about, okay, like with anything, there's another side to something we promote and say is a good thing, right? And something, especially in the way you do it. And I think, um, you know, as much as it can be therapeutic, as much as we know it from the science that it can um, free us or help mitigate stress, pain, anguish, right? Um, it can also possibly, right? Um, as I'm learning um, and reading, it may also be harmful if it's not done in a certain way, perhaps. Um, and so just wanted to bring that up today a little bit because the way they talked about it at Red Table, they contextualized it a little bit through some examples that they provided around, um, you know, becoming a blended family and forgiving our exes and sort of the situation that they've, you know, uh, lives that they build for themselves and how sometimes we are forced to like, be the bigger person or move forward for the sake of keeping peace and keeping the family together, right? But really, gosh, if we're not doing in a way that's healthy, um, perhaps we're causing ourselves some harm. And I just think that is so important for us to sort of stop and consider again, in, in, like with anything, it's often the process that we go through as opposed to this end goal that we're trying to achieve that can be really important to consider. Um, so, you know, it really, I think, um, it makes sense when you're thinking about how also sometimes when you act um, in a way where you're feeling like you're forced to forgive and you try to forgive, it could potentially open you up, make you vulnerable to being harmed again by the person you're saying you forgive, but you may not really be in a place where that forgiveness, there's all the steps that come before that that have been put in place. And so there's the potential that you could see that person sort of reoffend and harm you again, right? By opening yourself up to letting them back in because you're actively trying to forgive them, right? Um, and so you can imagine that people find themselves in these patterns, these toxic patterns of like forgiving and then being open and vulnerable to getting hurt yeah. and re-injured. Yeah. Mm. So when considering forgiveness, I just wanted some questions that sort of came up in my mind. I was thinking like, um, so when considering forgiveness, some things to think about is if you're trying to forgive someone um, who has not shown remorse, right? Like, what does that mean, right? Like to forgive someone, but know that they're not actually expressing empathy, like recognizing sort of what they did, um, how they may have caused you harm, 
Um, if you're trying to forgive someone who hasn't changed really in some of the way they think about or engage in certain behaviors that were harmful to you. If you're trying to forgive someone for the sake of satisfying others, mm -hmm. what does that look like, right? Like you're doing it because again, you want to be someone who's trying to create togetherness, you know, a sense of connection and maybe by not forgiving them, it's keeping everyone from being able to move forward, right? Perhaps that's one example of how that looks. If you're trying to forgive someone without really understanding what you're forgiving them for, I'm also wondering mm -hmm. what that looks like, right? It's like, you're just quick to forgive, but you're not actually really going through the process of making sense of what it is. What happened? Yeah. Why you're feeling the way you why are. Why you are, something. right? And can you really forgive someone if that hasn't really um, been something that you can do, right? Deconstruct sort of what it is, the elements that harmed you and how that person was connected to it and sort of just put more together in that sense. So just some questions that, you know, came up in my mind and thinking about like how one works to actively forgive and how trust is something you can rebuild and move towards forgiveness. It takes time. I think the time piece sort of matters here. Um, and of mm. course, not everyone has to be on a certain time clock to forgive, right? Doesn't, you know, some of us forgive faster than others. It's sometimes often it's based on the issue or the injury. Um, but just really giving people space and time to process to grieve or to just be in their experience without telling them they have to move forward. It feels like a form of invalidating someone's experience when you when we push them in that direction. All for the, I think most of the time for really good reason. We don't want to see them sitting in their pain, right? Forgiveness can really take a toll or the lack of forgiveness, right? Holding on to things can really take a toll on our well-being. So right. we might be doing it with all the right intentions, but could we also be pushing them towards long-term harm if they're not going through the stages or through the process? Mm. So yeah, the what therapy process? Yeah. Yeah. What do you all think? You know you know you. Um, no, I think it's a really really important um, topic and concept. I don't know if I've heard of toxic forgiveness before, but this uh, process I certainly have. I think like with everything there is of course a balance i think sometimes we think of the term forgiveness as like letting go of your own anger and um not being hurt anymore by them by the person or by the action they did or you know being able to self-soothe that hurt a little bit um but i think that we can do that while also keeping the party accountable right we don't necessarily have to hold on to the anger we have um, and the sadness that we feel, um, we can still hold them accountable while resolving that for ourselves too, right? I think forgiving someone doesn't necessarily have to mean um, not toxic forgiveness, of course, but like regular forgiveness doesn't necessarily have to mean um, letting someone back in just because we no longer have that anger and that um, we've kind of processed through the sadness and hurt, right? We can still hold them accountable, hold those boundaries, even though we're not holding on to that. Does that make sense what I just said? Yeah, I would definitely agree that there can probably be um, a few different ways to approach forgiveness. And based on sort of what I heard you say, Patricia, that there can be a process of forgiveness. And sometimes it's even sort of um, reflecting on and couching what 
the person's behavior says about what they're able to do given their own support systems or their own background or their own teaching and learning, right? That they, um, uh, it might be easier for me to sort of understand uh, why someone's behavior has been so hurtful if I sort of contextualize them a bit more. And also, uh, that doesn't mean that you need to necessarily continue in a relationship with that person or need to expose yourself to being re-victimized or that you need to partner with them in ways that could affect your career trajectory or there can be, I think, variations of those boundaries. I think that's what you had said that the author couched it in, Sasson, was in terms of boundaries and um, sort of reflecting and experiencing our own process does not need to then be a necessary like determinant of I'm going to continue in a relationship with that person just as I always have. I think those can be different layers of boundaries, I think, depending on what yeah. the situation is, right? Absolutely. And mm-hmm. I like the way this person also talked about toxic forgiveness as like having external pressures like family and yes. friends to yeah, forgive them. Yep. Yeah, that's different. Yeah, that's different. I haven't heard that before and it's very systemic and I could even imagine that this um, a situation in which this kind of healthier way to I did air quotes of forgiving someone while maintaining boundaries and not letting them re-injure you even though it's considered healthy could still face that peer pressure from family and friends of no you should let them in back all the way Mm -hmm. in a manner of speaking however that looks Um, so I could imagine how it would be very very challenging to do maybe in um, enmeshed families or families that very, very highly um, value um, family support um, and togetherness, it could be a really challenging thing to mm-hmm. maintain non-toxic forgiveness uh, too. Yeah. Tied to maybe family culture or family norms mm-hmm. around how we're allowed to experience and express emotions, right? If there are families that sort of don't allow for the experience of or expression of anger because it feels too risky or too unsafe or uh, you could easily see people in those families feel hurt or feel angry or feel like they would like to address something that's been done to them that's hurtful and uh, family norms around that not being okay and needing to be um, instantly forgiving of somebody to sort of preserve the family relationships Um, if our fear is that being angry or uh, needing forgiveness, need to talk about hurt, could sort of threaten that closeness. I totally agree with you, Patricia. I think that can be a really powerful family norm uh, that does not mean at all that when we pretend that we're okay with that behavior, that that false forgiveness erases our emotion about it or our memory. We just suppress it and then it just like with anything else it makes it worse right and i think especially when you're thinking about intergenerational trauma too when you think about families or individuals who have a history of being traumatized right and harmed and creating a space where we're asking people and pushing people to forgive when sometimes they haven't even been able to heal those injuries is really putting people in really Mm -hmm. vulnerable states and at risk right so i think we have to also account for you know what is this person's sort of interpersonal interpersonal like intergenerational experience right like i think those things really 
um, qualify like how we should encourage or approach these conversations about forgiveness. It makes me think as a therapist also like how I'm pacing those conversations and really considering them. Because again, we're always thinking forgiveness is this thing that's supposed to heal us, right? Like, yeah, it's like what you use, it frees you, right? It frees you to really let go yeah. of the hurt and the pain and it's more for yourself than for them. But it's like, what does it do? What happens when we're pushing people to do something they're not actually really doing? Maybe it's a version of something, but it's actually potentially... Right probably more harmful than helpful yeah i remember when i was in training uh one of my um uh clients was very very angry at her ex-partner and trying to work through some of that and my supervisor said let her have it you know like anger can be a motivator it can motivate you to make sure to stay out of unhealthy relationships and it was a very abusive relationship so i really love what you're saying because these quote bad emotions that we you know are trained sometimes as therapists to kind of work people out of are serving our people well and in the moment is serving them in the capacity that they need maybe months or years down the road it's something that's no longer serving them and then we could talk about it then Um, But being mindful about those contexts and actually what are these emotions serving them right now? It could be helpful, even though like classically we would look at it and say like, oh, this is not, quote, good for you. Sure, yeah. Uh, Next up, an academic deep dive into new research on confronting prejudice. No doubt You've been in a position probably many times where you've witnessed someone say something that's biased, prejudiced, racist, sexist, or in some other way, wildly inappropriate. You've probably also wanted to confront them or call them out on it. But maybe once in a while you've stopped yourself because you wondered what the risk might be stepping up and saying something. Maybe people might think you're pushy or whiny or, you know, trying to be politically correct. Uh, Maybe you'll make enemies at work or people will think that you're a troublemaker. The new research we're discussing in this episode by Dr. Rattan at London Business School, Dr. Croper at Sacred Heart, Dr. Arnett at UPenn, and Zanny Brown at Yale, and Dr. Murphy at Indiana University explores just what happens in our relationships when we confront prejudice. Their Journal of Personality and Social Psychology paper titled, Not Such a Complainer Anymore, Confrontation That Signals a Growth Mindset Can Attenuate Backlash, explains that prior research has shown that racial minorities and women anticipate being harshly negatively evaluated by others for speaking out and confronting biased comments. And indeed, they're right to worry. Research supports that there is social backlash for speaking out. There's also backlash for majority group allies who speak up, although to a lesser degree. But worrying about being seen negatively might mean we're less likely to take a stand, which allows biased comments to continue to perpetuate unchecked which is a problem and in part because confronting prejudice is an effective way to reduce other people's expression of prejudice. So these authors decided to explore whether there might be undocumented 
positive consequences in terms of how we're perceived for confronting prejudice. Might people who confront colleagues for inappropriate comments be thought of as optimistic, genuine, safe? If so, is there less likely to be judgment, avoidance, or, quote, backlash from others? Sarah, can you help us fill in uh, these details of this research? I'm really excited. How cool. And also, I can't wait to see how I can apply this to my own life. Yep. So these researchers uh, did this in 10 different research studies. 10? These studies. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Um, These brilliant people. In this journal, I know. Um, step by step sort of uh, very intentionally look to explore this process that specifically when we observe someone confront biased comments, uh, might we perceive that person who speaks up as holding a growth mindset about bias? In other words, do people who speak up, do people confront uh, biased language, uh, are they more likely to view prejudice as malleable, something that can oh, be changed? Okay. So there's a positive intention of their speaking up to help change the biased individual's beliefs or their behavior. Uh, they're motivated to maybe engage okay. with someone else's bias to help shift it versus if somebody doesn't confront it when they observe this and they stay quiet, uh, even if they disagree with what the person is saying, they might be thinking that that can never change, that person can never change, that bias can never change, prejudice in general is static and stable and we're just never going to do anything to shift it. And then what they looked at was whether when we observe somebody confronting someone else's biased comments, uh, if we perceive their mindset is positively growth-oriented, does it mitigate, does it lessen the likelihood that I might be uh, participating in some of that interpersonal backlash, does it make it less likely that I judge the person speaking up as a hypersensitive complainer or as less likable? Or is it less likely that I don't want to really get anywhere near them again? I don't want to spend time with them. They're sort of risky and unlikable. And uh, what they looked at then um, was across these 10 studies. So they had a sample of almost 3,200 participants across oh these projects. It's amazing. Um, And they first, uh, so I'm going to sort of summarize a few of these projects up front because they did this a few different ways. I think it's really interesting. So first, they did a few variations of reading a scenario where a woman who clearly expresses her disagreement in calm, firm voice or stays silent and doesn't respond to a new work colleague in response to his sexist comments. So a scenario where this work colleague says something along the lines of, we must be hiring for diversity reasons. With all the women here, I wonder how long this company will stay on top. And the woman in the scenario, they either read it that she confronts or other participants read it that she stays quiet. In that confronter scenario, when they read so that she speaks So real quick question, up, I'm so sorry. We, it, it, they're given something to read. It's not like they're mm-hmm. enacting it in front of them. Not yet. Oh, okay, yes. okay, okay. Correct. Yes. So first they're reading a description of this sort of interaction. Okay. And when they read the scenario that the woman confronts her disagreement and says that that's not something that she agrees with and that's not okay, they perceive her to have more of a growth mindset about prejudice, that they in general think that that person who confronts compared to people who read the scenario where they, she just stays quiet, believes that no matter who somebody is, they can always become a lot less prejudiced. Then they read a scenario, a different study, 
read a scenario, they were told that they are the male colleague who's saying the sexist comment. No difference. Even when they thought it was themselves doing this, or they rather imagined that it was them, the same outcome was true, that they perceived that the confronter thought that they were capable of change. When they read the confronter scenario, that yes, they also rated that woman as more of a complainer and less favorable. They also shared they had less of a desire to interact with her in the future as compared to people who read the version where she stays quiet. However, the more they rated that confronter as having more of a growth mindset, the less they saw her as a complainer, the more they rated her favorably. Okay, all right. So then they manipulate the scenario a little bit to describe the person's mindset and the people who read that she had a growth mindset that she felt like people could change in their ways were even more likely to say that that was her orientation that was her intention to confronting the bias comments and they rated her more favorably and as less backlash what's really interesting about this paper i think is they also engaged people in one study in writing about their own experiences of being confronted for actual bias comments that they made about someone's nationality race etc And they rated the person who confronted them as having more of a growth mindset. And if the more they did so, the more likely they were to say that person was positive. I think the most interesting part of this whole paper is this lab version of the uh, one of their studies where they brought people into the lab because they're looking to replicate this lifetime. It's a little bit different when you're writing about prior past experiences and reading scenarios that feel maybe a little bit safely at a distance, right? You're reading a scenario that you may or may not actually be sort of in it. So what they did is they brought participants into the lab and they told them they were going to participate in something that was observing individual work versus group work. And they had a confederate, which means like an employee of the lab who is trained to participate in the project as if they were another participant. So they go in with a participant to complete a task that's already established in other research projects to elicit stereotyping. They look at pictures of individuals and there's a sentence stem uh, that they have to complete by naming their identity. So um, this person is behind bars. Therefore, this person is a, and they're asked to complete the rest of the sentence by usually naming some sort of identity or where they are, et cetera. Uh, And the confederate engages with a participant, allowing the participant to answer sentences that are paired with pictures of a black man and trained to go along with whatever the participant says. 85% of the participants submitted at least one anti-black stereotype. So they had no trouble in eliciting stereotypes in their sample. Even the people who didn't said one out loud and then submitted a less stereotypical answer. So they named things like this person's more likely to be a criminal than when they paired that same sentence with somebody that was a picture of a white man, for example. So then they separate the two or they're told they're separated, and ask, what feedback would you like to give to your partner? And the participant receives feedback from their confederate that says, I know this task was a little weird, but I thought some of your answers on the photos of black people were a little prejudiced, and that bothered me. Like that one where you said that guy or girl was a stereotype that they had said. In the growth condition, they were given an additional sentence in that feedback that said, I wanted to point it out because I think people can work on these things and change how biased they are. Okay and then asked to give their immediate emotional reaction and then do the task, the sentence stereotyping task over again to see if it changed their behavior. And what they found was that being confronted by the Confederate 
in and of itself was a growth mindset cue. No matter whether they got the extra sentence, naming growth mindset, being confronted was tied to their perceiving this person as believing that prejudice was something that could be changed. And that the more that they attributed those growth beliefs to that person, the warmer they rated them, the more open they were to interact with them again in the future. And then when they did the task again, they were more likely to stereotype less. So I think this is a really interesting paper with lots of rich, different, clever ways to look at this process. But I do think, I mean, if you're, in general, the research suggests that um, people who should be stepping up and speaking out against biased comments as allies, as people who are sort of safely in a majority group, are far less likely to do that. Yeah. Just in general. We know that people speak up less against bias than we should. And if you are somebody who is listening to this and part of what you're, is getting in the way of your responding is worry or anxiety about what those interpersonal costs might be or how you might be judged, this is a nice little piece of research. Not little. It's a lot of work. It's a lot. Yeah. To stop. That gives a solid reason for... You might want to stop avoiding that for lots of reasons. But if what you're worried about, what's getting in the way, is worries about what happens for you, uh, there may be relationship advantages that come out of being brave like this. Mm. And it's important work. And also, if you're looking to confront and do it in a way that maybe uh, increases the likelihood of that being a positive outcome, you can also couch those confrontations by sharing your growth mindset. I'm going to correct you on this because I know this is something that you want to change and I believe that you can do it. I mean, it's a really, it kind of also offers a, uh, a boilerplate for how to do it too. If you are a person who wants to do it, but is afraid and don't really know exactly how to say it, this is lovely because it provides you that boilerplate, um, for how exactly to confront stereotypes or uh, biases I will say one um, uh, potential limitation about this is it the stereotype well the comments are simple stereotypes that someone submits it's not like full-out racial slurs or violence against a minoritized group Um, so it's maybe people would call them more microaggressions type um, comments Um, So I wonder if it would be similarly effective with um, aggressions. Um, I don't know. Future research, of course. But it seems like it's something that could help about uh, those daily things that um, we oftentimes see in the workforce or out in public. Yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that piece because I think when we're talking about like expressing implicit biases as opposed to some more explicit ones that are really, um, you know, not only in the way they're expressed, but also what comes with that in terms of the emotionality and the uh, emotional deregulation. I think it's harder to imagine Mm. being able to intervene and Mm. to, you know, exercise that uh, growth mindset. Um, it does make me think too, though, I guess as a black woman who has on many occasions sort of felt that feeling of if I call this out in a white space, it's already, there's the dynamics of that, that exists, but how 
much more um, singled out and uh, criticized and critiqued, I would feel. And thinking as a black woman, being able to exercise that kind of expression as opposed to a white person saying it, right? Um, and how different that might be received, right? And what level of defensiveness might come with that when trying, even with, you know, very explicit statements of, I believe this is something you can change. I don't know that you meant it this way, but next, I think it would still be received quite differently than if a white person mm -hmm. were to say. So I'm curious yeah. in the study how, how, if they assessed or if they looked at sort of the participant and their background in determining um, some of the different ways the outcomes played out, so. Great question. And I would say that they explain in a lot of detail exactly what you're saying in terms of what the research uh, has absolutely established in terms of your own personal experience and broadly that that's the experiences of people who are um, living in a position of being on the receiving end of those comments versus being maybe an observer or a bystander uh, and having positionally so much less power mm -hmm. in those situations that they are not only, of course, more worried, but they're more worried for a reason because they're far more likely to experience that backlash. That's a very real outcome that they are, uh, it's part of what they're couching their research in. Um, so there is, uh, they did intentionally describe the characteristics of each of their samples, uh, and they did intentionally in that lab scenario uh, pay attention to the race of the Confederate and their participants, and I think my guess is they would suggest that there's a lot more work to be done here in terms of exploring variations in how this works for uh, minoritized people and women versus people who are in majority group ally positions or potentially positions of allyship. Yeah. That, that this could look very, very different. And the internal experience of whether or not you believe somebody else is capable of change mm -hmm. vary in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I also was thinking about the group versus individual sort of um, way that people sometimes confront or call in right people mm -hmm. for um and how i imagine people are more likely to struggle to you know really um, be open to the feedback when they're by themselves as opposed to in a group where there's all these other pieces yeah. that come into play yeah. right i think we talked about it in a recent episode what a good in question. fact right yeah. <laughs> like yeah. like when others are around and like it's a lot harder mm. to put the defenses i think down enough to take in that mm. feedback because it's just fear of judgment, right, that's coming in from all those different um, voices right, and mm -hmm. people listening, yeah. Yeah, because this was one-on-one, -on -one, right, the experiment? It was one-on-one, -on -one, one -on -one. but also they separated them, right, and the feedback they got was written. So yeah. they were not even getting that feedback face-to-face. Yeah. So I think that's a phenomenal question about other variations in how this looks in terms of uh, the person making the bias comment and who they're surrounded by that sort of may promote that defensiveness right. piece. But also, um, yes, I think there was some safety here in terms of confronting via describing the reaction through scenarios and then also even in this lab-based study, separating the Confederate out and giving that feedback in writing. Those are different than doing that live time. Right, or calling somebody out in the middle of a board meeting or something like that. Mm. Right, right, right. They're wildly yeah. different, yeah. 
and your personal costs, but also potentially the advantages too could potentially be magnified. You know, I just, it reminds me though, if we're saying from this research, right, that there are ways to really call people and have some shift in some of the ways they're thinking about their own behavior. I think it goes back to some of the conversations we have about, you know, sort of thinking about ideal sort of ways to call people into situations Mm. and sort of help them challenge their own biases and ideas about things. Like, I think doing it in these group contexts sometimes as opposed to on social media or these other ways we want to call people out for certain behaviors. I think with the idea of maybe challenging, you know, them, but also changing their behavior and how maybe there's a way that it could be more effective done right and perhaps it's on this individual level right mm-hmm. that Smart. and here's an example of where we might see that actually work um, but it'd be good to see if there's some other studies that we can pull from to say like look at mm-hmm. when we do it in this context versus the way we do it in here and how yeah. that could look so definitely helpful just to even get that this research which I think like you said was took probably a considerable amount of time and energy to think through the different ways to creatively try to um, observe for these behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for bringing it up. Yeah. Woohoo! Boo! Woohoo! Yeah! Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear about advice from parents, family, and friends. We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows. And we read endless advice spewed at us on social media, blogs, and all those numerous top 10 lists. But believe it or not, a lot of it actually just might not be very good for our relationships. This is the part of the show where we use science, mind you, to decide if the advice is good or bad. If you have seen or heard advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com or get at us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. All at Attached Podcast or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. While you're at it, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your very favorite podcast app and or YouTube for that matter. And as always, share it with your loved ones. People love it when you share podcasts. Also, we uh, have a good or bad advice bonus uh, piece for all of our Patreon subscribers. If you want that bonus content, please become a member at patreon.com slash attached. So as promised, we have some social media posts. It's not all TikTok, fear not. Um, So the first one is Instagram. The gram that comes to us instantly. I'm sure that's how they made it. From at mindfulme underscore southwest. Reminder, the kindest thing you can do for yourself is not always the easiest. The kindest thing you can do for yourself is not always the easiest. Sarah... What are we thinking? What parts are maybe good advice? What parts are bad advice? What are you thinking? I think that is good advice for sure. I mean, I'm thinking even just of Sesson's conversation from Pop and Culture uh, just about 15 minutes ago uh, that would absolutely imply, right, that um, what you can do that is maybe paying attention to what you need and how you're feeling and what's important to you and what you value 
can be absolutely incredibly hard work. I think boundaries are some of the hardest work that any of us do in any of our relationships and negotiating those and navigating that and flexing that in a way that respects what's important to us and that we also get what we need out of that relationship can be extremely hard work. Um, So I appreciate that it wasn't advice stated in like a unilateral, like what's kind to do to yourself is always the hardest. That I would have had a lot of problems with, (laughs) but it was just sort of suggesting that it can be hard. And I absolutely agree. So we were thinking... Uh, maybe good advice, especially because it give, leaves that caveat. Sesson, what are you thinking? I agree a lot. I mean, I, it hits home quite a bit, I think, about. <laughs> of course. There's a lot of decisions that if I were to make, um, I could, for myself, that would help support my needs, would potentially create challenges for other people, right? So, and that to me is one of the reasons I don't make certain decisions, right? So I think um, it's hard to just meet our own needs. It's hard to really focus on um, all the ways that we could be, you know, supporting our wellness, you know, our health, and not consider how it, the implications on other people. It would be, of course, great if that was all on accord. Like if we're all, if I was able to meet my needs without other oh my people's gosh, not. I know, right? Yeah. It, but that's just, you know, not the way the world works. And no, we so, don't live in a vacuum. Yeah. So you try to find, a, you strike a balance with it, right? And yeah. um, there are certain times where you make hard decisions that, you know, mean that somebody else is going to have to experience a challenge in order for something to be off your plate or for you to have to set a boundary. Um, but it's necessary. So overall, we're thinking good advice. Next, we're going to move to TikTok. The tick and the talk. The ticks and the talks. So this one actually is just a woman dancing. I'm going to read it aloud while she dances beautifully. To all the eldest daughters out there. She's dancing really intensely and then it says. How many adults are you parenting right now? (laughs) So it says again to all of the oldest daughters out there, dot, 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 dot. How many adults are you parenting right now? Um, All of us being the eldest daughters, I just thought um, I wanted to share it with you and think, ask what, maybe not good or bad advice because it's not advice, but what are your immediate thoughts to that? Is there accuracies in it? Is it just a dramatic statement? thoughts woods there may be sort of a link missing in there that people were just sort of assuming as an oldest daughter i just sort of appreciate the segment of twitter that has turned oldest daughter into a meme because <laughs> there's a lot of it that i feel like oh ouch <laughs> no one hits home i sort of wonder if maybe it, this is implying that um there can be a lot of parentification that happens in oldest, oldest children yeah. and oldest daughters especially because of sort of uh gender role norms around Uh, women as caregivers and that can start at a very early age and then it's not necessarily that something that we might turn off when we become adults and so um, I'm not exactly sure what it's implying so I might not say it's great advice because I'm not really sure right what exactly it's saying uh and also something to pay attention to again in terms of where your boundaries are right and how much you're giving out 
to others versus how much you're sort of taking in for yourself. Relationships should be reciprocal. Um, yes. Even though that changes over the lifespan. Relationships are reciprocal. I think that's a very important. Sesson, what are your thoughts on it? Just reactions. Maybe not a good <laughs> or bad advice situation. I don't know. I think, um, I don't know. The word parentified always strikes me as, uh, there's always a, some, it feels like there's some kind of negative connotation to it. And I don't know that I, I think as eldest daughters, we could feel an increased sense of responsibility to make sure things are taken care of yep. and things don't get, you know, slip through the crack and things like that. But I think, yes, you could feel that sense of like having to take care of things more so than maybe um, sometimes if you didn't have that role growing up. But I don't know if I would call it parentifying other adults. I think it's just sometimes it feels like... Parenting. It, they said parenting. parenting oh, they adults. said parenting other yeah. adults. Yeah, I still think that feels a little bit yeah. more like judgmental and a little bit critical yeah. uh, as opposed to, yeah, this sense of like, okay, I've got to take more responsibility and not always wishing that that feeling was there. Yeah. But um, in that sense, I connect to it, but I don't know about the parenting sense. It sounds like you guys are well healthier than I am, which we don't for a very long time. Um, <laughs> I think I saw this and I go, <gasps> what is what was oh, my no. first reaction was. Um, <laughs> But I think that in a way that I can at least identify a lot of probably over the past 15 years or so, my adult friendships that have maybe fizzled out, not lost touch, but like fizzled out, I think were because I had a, a sense that I had to like take care of um, their, them to a certain extent or like be the quote adult in the room and like be in charge of like boundaries or be in charge of like rule following or stuff like that. So maybe it just touched me a, a little bit different than it did you guys, but it's a pattern that I had noticed probably over the past five years. And then I was, so and then this came along and I was like, oh, maybe I'm not the <laughs> only one. Um, so it's good to know that there are other um, uh, potentially uh, uh, unwell people out there like myself. <laughs> it's comforting to me. So next on TikTok, so this um, creator on TikTok, Spirit and Guts, have written on the TikTok, one of the most important things we can do as parents is to repair relationships or something to that effect. So she's whispering to her kids and because it's hard to hear, I'm going to read it. I just wanted to say I'm sorry that I yelled. And then she goes, oh, those are beautiful. Like her daughter had shown her something. Um, and then the parent starts again. I got overwhelmed being at the pool and trying to leave and I took it out on you. And I'm sorry about that. Okay, I'm sorry. It's not your job to do what I say just because I'm mad. All right, uh, you do what feels good to you, okay? And then the little girl starts talking about a game she wants to um, play with the mom reconnecting with the mom. Um, I don't know, again, I don't know if this is like a good or bad advice, um, but I had some reactions to it when I saw it. Um, and I'm curious from your points of view, um, research clinicians, um, your thoughts, uh, pros and cons of this exchange. 
So I think it does read like advice in terms of, I mean, it sort Fair. of starts with what we're doing, what we can do as parents. The most powerful thing we can do is repair relationships with our kids yes. when we have hurt them, right? And I don't disagree with that piece of advice. I think that that can be actually really powerful uh, to apologize for our behavior, especially when our emotions become really big and we struggle with them as parents, which happens extremely regularly. And we're allowed to have big emotions as parents, by the way. Yep. And then also doing that intentional apologizing and repairing the relationship is a fantastic way to not only heal that but also to model what it looks like to be able to acknowledge and apologize and uh, to pay attention to how important that is the second half of the video in terms of explaining to the child that it's not your job to do what i say because i'm angry you do whatever you feel is good for you that piece i'm not sure the context but developmentally that could be really inappropriate in terms of um Sometimes when I'm angry, you're absolutely supposed to do exactly what I'm saying because it's out of safety needs, fear. Uh, There's something that you haven't listened to several times and now I'm expressing anger because I am angry or I am frustrated and that should be a motivator because you also don't necessarily want that in our relationship either, right? Like, So there's, it's the second half of the advice that um, worries me about in what context we are saying to small children, you should do what you want. You don't have to listen to me when I'm angry. Right. That piece feels a little undermining of the first half where um, when I'm angry, I actually do need you to listen to me because my anger is important. And that's true in other relationships also, if that makes sense. So good advice. The first half, the second half, um, about the anger and just do what makes you feel good. Maybe not so good advice, especially developing yeah, middle really age. Sure what that's applying to. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Sesson thoughts. Yeah. I, I was thinking almost exactly the same thing about the first part, feeling really supportive of the idea of repair um, and how often that can be an incredible way to connect with your children um, and show your humanness. And also that you know how to come um, from a place of trying to show, validate their experience in a way where you're saying, I'm going to, you know, come back, show you that I understand what happened here wasn't okay. It's, it can be a huge um, opportunity to connect and model. As far as the second half, again, I don't also understand if I was missing some context there, so I don't want to come off, you know, um, too cited about it. But I do think the only... Sh- other piece that you didn't say there, Sarah, that came to mind is if you're a parent who tends to have a really difficult time generally regulating and you say a lot of things out of anger often and you express them to your children in a way where you're very critical and there's a lot of you know um, criticism and contempt there, then you may want to use some disclaimer to say, if you know that you've done it a lot of times, to let your child know when I say things in that way, I'm typically like try not to engage with. I'm hoping that that's not where the person was coming from, but as a general rule, like you know, if you're a parent who really struggles to regulate and often says a lot of really critical things to your children, um, then yeah, some kind of statement to really prepare them for tune me out when I lose my mind here because I do that. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> um, I think also if necessary. that that is the case, consider you know, getting a third party help, go see a counselor or a therapist to help you 
regulate that because I think that will just be helpful for you and all your relationships. Um, so I think we're all on the same page. Um, just one thing from my point of view to add, you know, her saying your job is not to do what I ask when I'm angry. I think also, and she's talking to her daughter. I worry, again, not knowing the context, that it's potentially could be undermining her own anger as a woman. Like so often women are, um, you know, called emotional or um, all of these things about not being able to handle um, or express emotions truly, right? Or that we, you know, fly off the handle or whatever. I worry that talking in invalidating terms about your own anger as a mother to your children might be perpetuating that stereotype of my emotions are invalid and you can just, you know, ignore them. You don't have to listen to me would be the other piece of that that I was a little bit concerned with. But I echo everything that you said. The first part, absolutely repair, apologize when you say something you don't mean to. It's parents as humans. We're not perfect, right? We make mistakes. Um, we say things we don't mean. That's normal. You have to apologize afterward in a meaningful way. And I know we've covered many uh, episodes on that, including this one. Um, but sometimes parents do have to raise their voices um, for safety reasons. It sounds like they were at a pool. My, I would be at a 10, you know, I of high alert to making sure that safety is happening and we're going. So I think there are times when you raise your voice and you need to listen and follow directions as a child and even as <laughs> grown adults. Um, and that happens and that's okay. So as always, thank you for listening to Attached. Remember, call us, um, email us, or get at us on all of the social medias uh, about any relationship advice you've received and that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it.